Well, thank you, worship team, for your leadership this morning, and uh, as I mentioned, so glad to be here. I'll be even uh, more excited when the rest of my family arrives. My wife comes, uh, and my 12-year-old daughter will get here on Friday, and then the following week, uh, my two teenage uh, children. For the last week, my oldest son, Quinn, and I have uh, kind of been batching it. We've been uh, in our place. Our stuff just arrived on Friday, so we've been getting things uh, in order. Um, but I want to say, on behalf of my family, just thank you so much for the way that you have uh, received us and loved us. And uh, from the, uh, the text messages, the emails, the cards, uh, just been, we have felt uh, very, very well loved. So, so thankful for you and um, grateful for the, the search team and, and their work and the chance to, to correspond with them and, and pray with them and work with them over the last uh, few months. And for the staff, the way they've been leading, uh, just so thankful to be here. I'm so excited about what the Lord may do over the next months uh, and years, and looking forward with, to partnering with you in gospel ministry. As you notice from the, uh, the video bumper that you just saw, um, we're starting a new series this morning called First Things, and um, you know it's a, it's a chance for us to kind of lay a foundation, if you will, for where we're going to be going. Um, about 90% of the time, we'll be working our way through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, section by section. We call it expository preaching. Um, but I thought since I'm new and getting to know you and you're getting to know me, uh, it would be helpful for us just to take a, a few weeks, four or five weeks, and, and uh, we're going to go through this series together again to kind of lay the foundation. So uh, let's pray and we will get into the text of Scripture. Father in heaven, we do thank you that we do have a strong and perfect plea that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we thank you that because of the cross work of your Son, we can now approach you with boldness, with freedom, with expectation, knowing that we have no right in our own to make any claim of you. And yet because of the relationship that you've made possible by sending your Son for us, we now, in fact, are called sons and daughters by you. And Father, we praise you for that. Will you perform a work this morning by your spirit and through your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43, and we're going to be working our way here in just a moment through verses 1 through 12. Uh, as many of you know, before the Lord called me to pastoral ministry, I worked as, a, as a, an intern, a television intern, or I started out in the, as an intern in television before I kind of transition to become a sports anchor and broadcaster with CNN and then and NBC. And, and you know how it is as, as an intern. As an intern, uh, and Jacob and Sean can attest to this, you get all the dirty work. And so uh, I was, you know, I was working in this television station, but I was kind of the one given the tasks of uh, making coffee runs and uh, dusting keyboards and basically doing whatever needed to be done so that the uh, sports anchors and reporters could uh, do their job. But as an intern, I had to learn to do everything from uh, writing scripts to reading a teleprompter to editing video to doing voice, voiceover. So I had to learn to do all of those things. You know, it was part of the, the internship. And when I first started as an intern, I was told as I, when I edited a story, I was told to hold each shot for four to five seconds and before advancing to the next sort of uh, scene. Uh, well, now, 20 years later, 
shots unfold at one to two seconds per scene. In fact, if, you're, if you go home this afternoon and you watch some television, you might watch a commercial, you can count yourself over that 30 seconds how many times they, they switch scenes. It might be 30 times in one 30-second commercial. Now, you ask the question, what, what exactly has changed in those 20 years as it relates to that? Um, well, we live in an age of distractions, don't we? We live in an age of short attention spans where, where more things than ever are competing for our interest. In fact, if you ever had a conversation with someone and you notice they're constantly checking their phone for text messages. If you have a teenager, this has undoubtedly happened to you. And if you have, you know, now with the advent of iWatches and so on, you'll find that even when you're talking to someone in a meaningful conversation, they are regularly checking to see what may be incoming. Uh, again, we're bombarded with messages and options and expectations and the expectation to be available at all times. And of course, along with that is the infatuation with what's next. What is the next thing coming down the pipeline? What is the next thing that we should be anticipating? Well, in order for us to be faithful as a church and not sort of fall prey to the whims and fancies of the world, we have to regularly answer the question, why? Why do we do what we do? Why do we get, get, gather together on Sunday mornings and sing? Why do we give of our money? Why do we serve one another? Why do we uh, do small groups? Why are we invested in each other's lives? Why do we do what we do? In order for us not to get caught up in the next big thing, we have to ask and answer the question, why? And of course, the reality is bound up in the heart of human beings. Every person really is the need for motivation, the need to know why, why Am I doing what I'm doing? If you have kids or grandkids or even nieces or nephews, uh, you know how true this is. Kids are famous for this. They're famous for asking the question, why? You ask them to do something, they want to know why. And I ask uh, a conversation that goes like this somewhat regularly. I'll ask my kids to do something. I'll ask one of my kids, hey, will you take out the trash? They'll say, why? I say, well, I mean, you see it. It's, it's kind of full. It needs to go out. They say, well, what did I do? But I'm not, I'm not punishing you. This is just the trash needs to go out. Will you please take it out? Well, can I do it later? No, do it now. Why? The question why comes up all the time. And so we're going to start this morning, in, in my first Sunday here, trying to answer that question why. And of course, the question has been answered a long time ago, uh, but we're going to appeal to the scriptures for the answer to the question why. So Isaiah chapter 40, 43, and before I read uh, the first five verses, let me just kind of give you a little historical background, which you need uh, for this particular section. Isaiah uh, was a prophet of God. God called Isaiah to be his very mouthpiece, and he would minister to the people of Israel at a time in Israel's history where things were going really, really poorly. In fact, they could hardly get any worse. Uh, the Israelites had become so corrupt and so idolatrous uh, that God threatened to totally remove them from his sight. And so if you think about it this way in terms of the context, the glory days of Israel are gone. It's, been, it's about 700 years before Jesus would come. And Israel is now enslaved. They've been enslaved to the Babylonians. Uh, their land has been stolen from them. Homes are wrecked. Uh, men and women have been sold into slavery. So things are about as bad as they could possibly be. And yet God says there is reason for hope. Isaiah 43, and I'll read the first five verses. 
But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When, I pass, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cus and Sheva in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. Now, I want to pause there, because this is really fascinating. This is incredible. In the middle of their suffering, and in the middle of their enslavement, in the middle of all these things they're going through, God says to the people of Israel, don't be afraid. Fear not, he says. Now, he does go on to say, because of your rebellion, you will be pushed to the brink of utter destruction. But, he says in verse 2, the rivers will not overwhelm you. You will walk through fire, verse 2, but, he says, the flames will not consume you. You're going to suffer at the hands of evil rulers. But, he says in verse 3, I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I want you to notice something about this passage that's, again, it's fascinating. That is the, the intimacy of the language here. God says things like, I created you. I formed you. I love you. He says, you are mine. You are precious to me. Now, the, the people that God says these things to, these aren't good people. Okay, These are not well-behaved, obedient people. These are terrible people, really, when you think about their history. These are people who had made all kinds of promises to God and, and, and uh, rebelled against him. These are people who were falling down on their faces and worshiping gods that were made of clay and stone. These are people who would, who would go into their garages, so to speak, and fashion something out of wood, and then they would fall down on that very object and worship that object, despite all the things that they had seen from God, the living God. So these people were completely unreliable, but yet God says to them, I love you. You were mine. Here's the thing. God never abandons the people who belong to him. His love is not conditioned on the performance of his people or even their obedience. His love is anchored in his character. So if you put your faith in Christ this morning, if you've turned from your own self-centeredness, your own sin, you put your faith in Jesus, then you can rest assured this morning that God will never abandon you. And sometimes we feel like, you know, um, I believe that if, if I'm doing really well, then God loves me. But if I do poorly, I have a bad day, I sin, I sin in the same way again, then surely God's going to withhold his love from me. But that's not the way God's love works. God's love is not anchored in, it's not rooted in our performance or how well we do. God's love is actually rooted in his character. So you have a great day, if you're in Christ, God loves you. You have a terrible day, if you're in Christ, God loves you. It's not based on your performance. This is why God will say to the people of Israel, fear not. Why? Because he doesn't deal with his people according to what we deserve, but according to his mercy. And I love what one Old Testament commentator, Ray Ortland Jr. says, what matters most is not what you deserve, but whose you are. Well, whose are we this morning? Verse 3, we belong to the Holy One of Israel. 
This is one of Isaiah's favorite phrases to describe God. It appears 25 times in Isaiah and only seven times throughout the rest of the entire Old Testament. So Isaiah loves to use this particular phraseology. And the point of the phrase is really to express the otherness of God. The fact that God is actually, though we may think he is, he's very much unlike we are. Now, of course, we know that the Bible tells us we are like God in the sense that we are created in his image, uh, which means that we are made in his likeness. Uh, we are relational, volitional, emotional, uh, created beings, but we're still created. God, however, is the creator. He is the one who made everything in the world. And as such, he is existentially, ontologically, morally, ethically, and emotionally not like us. He's different than we are. In fact, he, he would actually uh, call his people to account because they, for a while, started to believe that they're just like, he's just like there. He says, this is where you're wrong. You believe that I'm just like you are. See, God has us in his hands. We never have God in our hands. We are fickle and moody and at times even capricious, but God, he never changes. His character is always the same. We are limited in every way. He is limitless. We get tired. He never gets tired. He is complete in himself. He depends on no one. He never loses strength. He never sleeps. He's not bound by the constraints of time and space. He is with us, as the scriptures say, and yet he is also high and lifted up. He is eminent, he is close, and yet he's also transcendent beyond our figuring out. God is unlike us, and furthermore, there are no other gods who can challenge him. This is what Isaiah is getting to by this language. He is, as Isaiah makes it very clear, the unique God. Now, here's our first point this morning as we consider the why, as we sort of build this case. The Holy One of Israel has no competitors or equals. Thus, He is the only one worthy of glory. So there is no other God. There are, there are other so-called gods, and, and the people of Israel would worship these gods that they had made and created and, and carved. But, but Isaiah makes it very clear by his language, there is no other God. My wife, Janine, and I have had this longstanding uh, argument. Uh, I'll call it a disagreement. And uh, it has to do with the, the nature of my compliments to her. Now, I, I, I praise my wife all the time. I compliment her all the time. Not just for her looks, but for the way she handles situations, uh, for her spiritual insights. So I compliment her all the time. Um, but because I'm personally a very competitive person, for me, uh, the greatest compliment that I can give is actually a superlative. So it has the word best in it. You know, this is the best. So I, for example, I may say to her, wow, you got your hair, you got your haircut. That's the best it's ever looked. Um, but to her, the way that she hears that is your hair finally looks good. Um, I may say to her, you look better in that dress than any dress you own, which to me is like the highest compliment. But to her, it communicates, you don't really look so good in those other dresses. So I'm, you know, I'm learning and, and growing in this. Um, and I also learned the other day that this kind of praise, this sort of superlative praise doesn't work with my teenage daughter as well. She came down the stairs and, and I said something to her that I thought was very complimentary. So, oh, I've never seen you look so beautiful. 
And she just looked at me and then stormed back up the stairs angrily. And my wife, my wife, of course, seizing an opportunity, said to me, that's the best you've ever made her feel. Um, she, but for me, I'm very competitive. So for me, if I say to someone, that's the best, that, that, that means something. I'm looking for competitors. But the reality is the God of the Bible has no competitors. He has no co- competition because there is no other God. There are other so-called gods, but there is no other God. He has no rivals. He has no competition. He is the only one worthy of glory. Now, the concept of glory is an interesting one. The Hebrew word for glory is a word kaveth, uh, which means weight. But that doesn't really help us much either. Um, it's kind of like, it's hard to define glory. It's hard to reduce it into words. It's kind of like, it's hard to define love, right? I mean, you can say you love someone, but they ask you, if they ask you what formula did you use to derive at that, I mean, it's not really helpful, right? I mean, it's not really something you can kind of quantify. It's kind of like that with glory. You, it's just, you know glory when you experience it. It's easier with glory to actually illustrate than it is to define. So a sunset seen from the Pacific Coast Highway, that's glory. A flawless violin concerto, that's glory. A peak at the Grand Canyon from the Western Rim, that's, that's glory. The sun rising over a completely calm lake, which doesn't even have a wrinkle in it, completely placid, that's glory. A perfect dismount after a complicated and seemingly impossible gymnastics routine, that's glory. Now, I only mention that one because I... I got stuck in a window seat on the flight over here, and I was, I was right next to me were two gymnastics coaches. They spent the entire four hours and 30 minutes reviewing gymnastics routine. I wanted to bang my head against the tray in front of me. It just over and over. Well, the head wasn't tucked in properly. This one, But when you see somebody who does it right, you see that someone does it beautifully. That's, that's glory. Now, of course, none of these things compares with God's glory. They just point to a greater glory which is God's alone. The glory of God, let me say it this way, is the devastating beauty of his manifold perfections. He is pure light. That's why no one can look at him and live. His glory is too intense. It is the infinite and overflowing weight of the supreme goodness of the living God. That's his glory. And God says he's actually jealous for his own glory. He says he's not going to share his glory with anyone else. That is to say the weight, the beauty, the majesty, the praise-inducing goodness that belong to him alone, God will not allow anyone else to share. In fact, he says in Isaiah chapter 48, my glory I will not give to another. Now, it's important to note that we can't add to God's glory. he's, He's God. He doesn't need us. But we can display his glory. Look at verses 5 through 7 as we continue through the text. God says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed. And made. 
God says, I'm going to gather everyone from the distant islands, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Now, to be called by name is an important concept in the Bible. It implies intimate knowledge. It implies uh, friendship. Remember in Exodus, Exodus 33, God says to Moses as a way to encourage him, he says, look, I know you by name. You have found favor in my sight. Remember how Christ would name his disciples. He said, you were called this, but now you will be known as this. When God calls a person by name, it implies intimate knowledge and friendship. But here God says to those called by my name. So he's not saying to them, I'm going to call you by your name as a way to demonstrate that I know you. I'm actually calling you by my name. Well, what does that mean? This is a way to indicate possession. To be possessed by God, to belong to him, means to be safe, means to be protected, it means to be guarded. And I love what 19th century Scottish uh, pastor Alexander McLaren says. He says, God does not hold his property slackly. None shall pluck them out of the Father's hand. Reminds me of the song that we used to sing in worship, and maybe you sing it here too, uh, He will hold me fast. When I think my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he would hold me fast. When I feel like I no longer, I know I can no longer hold on, he will hold me fast. Maybe this morning you're feeling like you're just barely hanging on. Maybe you're in a marriage that's characterized by tension. Maybe you have a relationship with one of your children that's characterized by frustration or animosity. Maybe you're in a situation where you you go to where you work and you know the boss doesn't like you. And even when you drive into the parking lot, you feel that sense of unrest. Maybe it's spiritual unrest that you're sensing. Maybe you've never really put your faith in Christ. And even though you've, you've, you've told everyone you're a Christian, what you're really resting in is your own ability. You're a very accomplished person. You're a very gifted person. And you go to work and people respect you. And so what you're really trusting in is actually your own ability. And you're sensing this morning you're barely hanging on. Well, if you're in Christ, it won't be your strength that keeps you until the end. It will be the faithfulness of the one who calls you by his name. He will not forget you. He is with you regardless of what you've done. Well, not only does God call his people by name, but he he says he has created us for his glory, verse 7. So that brings us to our second point, and it's this. God made us for himself to display his glory and extend his fame. There was a song, speaking of worship songs, there was a song we used to sing, I don't know, 10 years ago, and it was called Famous One. You are the Lord of the Famous One. And we sang that one time, and this lady, right at the end of the service, she kind of made a beeline to see me. And she said, you know, I'm not really comfortable with that language. I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, famous, that sounds like something that should be reserved for celebrities, but not for God. I said to her, well, I understand where you're coming from, but actually this is language that comes right out of Isaiah 66, where God says, I'm going to send send messengers to the distant islands for those who have not seen, aware of my glory or heard of my fame. So we, as those who are created for God, were created to display his glory and extend his fame. If you've ever wondered, why am I here? 
Here's your answer. You were made to display God's glory and extend His fame. That provides the motivation, the impetus, the reason behind everything we do as a church and everything we do as individuals. I was riding in the car the other day with my 17-year-old son, and um, I don't know, he was in a bit of a bad rut, you might say, and, uh, and feeling particularly unmotivated, unmotivated in school, unmotivated in basketball, unmotivated in his relationships, unmotivated in his spiritual development. And this is not terribly unlike him, uh, but we were, we were driving, I was driving, and he was next to him, and he said, Dad, he said, what's the point? I said, what do you mean, what's the point? He goes, I, I just feel like sometimes, like, what's the point of all this? I said, what, what's all this? What, what's the point of life? Like, what? I get up, I do the same thing every day. Like, what's the point? Now, he wasn't suicidal or anything, but he was asking. He was, I guess, having a bit of existential unclarity. And so I said, well, I'm, I'm glad that you asked it. I mean, that's a, good, that's a good question. And I'm glad that you didn't keep it inside. I'm glad that you actually shared with me that you're, you're asking those questions. I said, the reality is the Bible tells us the point. And the point is, you were actually put here. You were made, you exist to glorify God. That's why you exist. That's the point. Your point, the point of your existence is to bring God glory. Now, of course, that begs a very good and natural question. How do we glorify God? Well, the scriptures give us plenty of ways. Uh, we bring God glory when we worship him, Psalm 29. We glorify God when we believe in him, Romans 4. We glorify God when we bear much fruit, John 15. We glorify God when we confess our sins. We glorify God when we're zealous for his name. We glorify God when we suffer for Christ's sake. Perhaps the best way to understand it is this way. Whenever by our words, actions, or motives, we acknowledge and accentuate God's beautiful character, his perfect attributes, his knowledge, his holiness, his love, His power, His grace, and our dependence therein, we glorify God, which God delights in. So, so anytime by our words, our actions, our motives, we actually ascribe to God the wonder, the glory, the majesty, the beauty that is due His name, we glorify God, and He delights in that. Now, it doesn't have to be spiritual things, simply spiritual things either. It can be mundane stuff. For example, when we enjoy a meal with gratitude to God, recognizing that He is the great provider, we glorify God. This helps us to make sense of 1 Corinthians 10, 31, which says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If we, if we accentuate and recognize his majesty and beauty and glory, then we glorify him. When we work hard at our jobs, utilizing our own creativity, understanding that we were made in God's image, himself being the great of, greatest of all the creatives, we glorify God. And, of course, this realization changes everything, doesn't it? If God's glory is our ultimate goal, that is to say making much of Him, then this should put an end to our striving for our own glory. Puts an end to selfish ambition, puts an end to getting my way, whether it's in church or life. Now, it takes a regular and daily dose of God's grace for us to get this and live this way. But when we look at things through the lens of God's glory, then we see marriage differently. It's not just a way to meet each other's needs, although it is that, but it's also a way to display God's glory as we love one another sacrificially, 
as we give ourselves to one another, as husbands lead humbly and wives submit joyfully, we display God's glory and his relationship with the church. And I point this out in, in, in every wedding that I do, and I've done, I don't know if I should say hundreds, but at least dozens of weddings over the last few years. And I always point out there's a, there's a, a horizontal reason for marriage, that is to say our companionship with one another, but there's also the vertical dimension, and that is when a husband and wife come together the way God designed, they actually reflect the glory of God, his unity and plurality as, as the character of God, the nature of God. When we pursue God's glory, we see parenting differently. No longer is it our responsibility just to raise up kids who are decent people, who get good grades and get a good job and contribute to society but as those who would declare and extend God's glory to the ends of the earth through their creativity, through their witness, through their vocation, through their relationships. We see vocation differently. So when we do our jobs well, using our God-given abilities, uh, we're actually glorifying God because we're image bearers of God. So really, the way that we see life through the lens of God's glory it changes the way we view everything. Pleasure, money, art, leisure, sex, all of these things we see as ways to shine a spotlight on the goodness and the provisions of God. And here's the thing. There's actually a mysterious uh, beauty to this, and that is when we actually look to bring God glory, to glorify God with our lives, then we experience that elusive joy. We look everywhere for joy. We, we, we try to find joy in our pursuits and pleasure, whatever it is, but it's so elusive. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. Solomon, who had everything, he had the food, and he had the women, and he had the palace, and he had everything that was beautiful. He says at the end of it, he said, it's, what's the point? Again, he said, it's all, like, it's all pointless. In vain did my mother conceive me, he said. But when we pursue God's glory, we seek to glorify him in our lives, we find that joy as he gives us the desires of our hearts, and we find that satisfaction in him. Now, there's one way that seems to bring God the most glory. Let me read the last section here, verses 8 through 12. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Repeatedly, God says, you are my witnesses. You are my witnesses. Well, to what are we witnessing? What are we witnessing that we are to give credence to or to account to? This is a powerful phrase. And yes, God is speaking to Israel, but he's also describing every person who has ever been, according to God, called by his name. Those people are his witnesses. We are witnesses to what? To God's saving activity. God says in verse 10, I have chosen you that you may believe me and understand that I am he. You didn't choose me. I went after you, God says in essence. 
and overwhelmed you with my love and my grace. This is a picturesque description of what God does in redemption, which brings him the ultimate glory. Here's our final point this morning. God is most glorified through the work of redemption, which centers on his son, Jesus Christ. Now, redemption is is one of the most important concepts in the Bible. It has to do with being bought out of slavery. That's what it means to be redeemed, to be bought out of slavery. And uh, we know from the account of Scripture that the whole earth, the whole world is in slavery and subjection to sin. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God there in the garden, it was like putting a drop of cyanide in a glass of wine. Everything that remained would be tainted would be poisoned, would be corrupted. And so the world is corrupted. Now we know this. We don't have to look too far to see that the world is messed up. We see the world is not right at a global level. All kinds of conflict. We see the world is not right at a national level. We see the issues. We know the world's not right even at a relational level. Again, maybe you're in a strained relationship even this moment with someone who means so much to you. We see the world is not right at a physical level. As just this morning met a member of this church, Capshaw, who who's now has cancer in his body. And how many of us have known someone who's suffered physically or even this moment has a nagging illness or ailment that just won't go away? The world is not right in the physical realm. And it's not right in the spiritual realm either. In fact, because of Adam and Eve's, the sin of our first parents, it means that we come into this world not in a good relationship with God, hear people say all the time, well, I've always been a Christian. That's not the way the Bible speaks. We come into this world not in a good relationship with God, but actually estranged from God, at odds with Him, enslaved to sin. When we talk about God's work of redemption, we're talking about God's plan to buy out of slavery everything that's held captive to sin. Now, this does have cosmic implications, By which I mean God's going to redeem, he's going to buy out of slavery everything that's wrong with the world. So he's going to restore in a million ways everything that's broken. But at the greatest level, we see that God, his plan is to reconcile sinful people, broken people to himself. Through the person and work of his sinless son, Jesus Christ. So by turning from our sin and believing in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and return... We then are free from the enslavement to sin. We're made right with God. So God extends to every person the offer to repent and believe. He says, if you believe in me, if you trust in me, if you put your faith in me, what I did by sending my son on the cross, I will make you a new person. I will wipe out your past and I will make you new. And I will put my spirit within you to intercede for you and to pray for you and and to help you and to guide you. And all of this is available to those who believe. This is the, the ultimate in God's redemptive work is to reconcile broken and sinful people to himself. And then God calls us to be ministers of that reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are witnesses to God's saving activity. You, if you are in Christ this morning, you are a witness to God's work of redemption. And he has called us to be, in turn, 
witnesses as well, sharing with others the ministry of reconciliation, the beauty and sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are witnesses to God's redemptive work. God is Lord of this city. He is Lord of it all. He has laid claim to every corner of creation, and he will judge the living and the dead. Every offense will be accounted for. Every rebellious thought, every recalcitrant heart will have to give an answer. But God is a gracious God. He offers forgiveness in Christ. He offers a way to know him, Isaiah says. A way to understand him. All pointing to the cross work of his son. And God says, out of every group of people that have their own language and customs, I want people to sing my praises. And out of every remote culture, in every corner of the world, God wants worshipers who can tell of his greatness, who can display his glory among the nations. Out of every tribe and tongue, God God wants followers who will extol his perfections and point others to him, the only one who satisfies We were made for his glory. That's why we were made. That's why you were made, for God's glory. And so bringing this thing full circle as individuals and as a church, we're going to structure and we're going to organize and we're going to plan. And I'm a planner, so I like to be in my office writing out things for the next months. But we're going to do all of those things with the single goal of glorifying the Lord of heaven and earth, the one to whom we are witnesses, the one who has redeemed us, the one who has bought us out of slavery, that will serve as the why behind everything we do. May God cause it to be so. Let's pray.